We are in a series, my first ever Lent series, where we're going through the last week of Christ's life, not exhaustively, of course. About a third of all the gospel material is actually about the last week of Jesus' life, so we couldn't possibly cover it in any kind of exhaustive way. But we're doing highlights, and uh, and today we are uh, focusing on the betrayal and the denial of Jesus. That is Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. And so the passage is from Matthew 26. And of course we can't even read all of the stories of these two because it's, it's more than we could fit in. But we'll read two portions of them. Matthew 26 beginning in verse 20, first of all. When it was evening, he inclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who betrayed him, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. And then skip over to verse 69 of the same chapter, Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself, and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So, there are five parts of my sermon today. Um, the first is the betrayal, and the second is a takeaway from the betrayal. The third is the denial. The fourth is a takeaway from the denial. And the fifth is a takeaway from the contrast between Peter's denial and Judas's betrayal. So, the betrayal. Judas, as you know, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and was punished with many woes. 
the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This means that when Jesus was choosing his 12 disciples, he chose a betrayer. Now the earliest we're told that he knew was in John 6, right after the feeding of the 5,000, when he said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now, I think he knew from the very beginning. He says here in our passage, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, suggesting that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and if it was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy certainly Jesus, the the master interpreter of the Old Testament understood that he was to be betrayed that it was going to happen so why would Jesus, if that's the case why would Jesus choose a betrayer? Why did he choose Judas to be one of his twelve? Well, there are certainly others he could have chosen. But the fact is, Judas led to our redemption, didn't he? The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The Son of Man goes as it has been planned. As it has been arranged. Jesus came to die. His death was not a mistake. He didn't make Judas betray him. But I believe he chose a man he knew would betray him. Jesus chose Judas to help him get to the cross. Judas, of course, meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Now, a takeaway regarding the betrayal. Jesus has chosen for there to be Judases in his church. The fact is, in his infinite wisdom, God has not ordained this age to be an age of purity. It is a mixed age, an age of blessings and graces which point to a greater age to come, but it's also an age of imperfections and curses. And I'm not talking just about the world, I'm talking about the church. The church is destined to have Judases, hypocrites, false sons in her pale, as the hymn goes. It is. This age is an age of saints who reflect Christ, but it's also an age of betrayers who reflect Judas. The presence of hypocrites and betrayers doesn't take anything away from the church's importance, just as Judas doesn't take anything away from the importance of the apostles. Some people say that the church is in very bad shape today in that it's not the way it was in the book of Acts, in the early church. 
But what about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? And what about the discrimination of the, against the Greek-speaking widows in Acts 6? And what about the Judaizers and the controversy over the acceptance of the Gentiles into the church which boiled over in Acts 15? And what about Judas? God hates betrayal. But God uses betrayers. We shouldn't be happy about it. But we do need to accept that there will be betrayers. And that's why it's absurd that people say that they have walked away from the church because of hypocrites. This is what God in his great wisdom has determined. And it's actually good for us. It teaches us humility. It teaches us to care about the more important things. It forces us to let go of the things of this earth and put our trust in God alone. It helps us to long for a better world. It helps us to appreciate God's grace. It teaches us to run run to and to put all our trust in the one who will never betray us or forsake us. The secret to happiness is understanding the good of the bad. Not the good and the bad, but the good of the bad. The secret to happiness is understanding and appreciating and accepting God's good purposes for the hard things and the bad things that we experience in this world. Maybe Jesus doesn't want us to have such wonderful church experiences that we stop looking and longing for the day of his return. Maybe God doesn't want us to have such wonderful church experiences that we lose our ability to invest ourselves in more ordinary church life after those experiences are over. And I personally, who has gone through it, the experience of having a very memorable church experience in my younger life um, and even here I know people who can't get over that memory and who live in that memory and can't adjust to the way things are because they're so attached to the way things were If God is sovereign over the one who betrayed Jesus, don't you think he's sovereign over the ones who betray you and me? They meant it for evil, but God means it for good. Now those are some thoughts about Judas' betrayal. Now let's look at Peter's denial. Peter did not betray Jesus, but he did deny Jesus three times as we read on Thursday evening after the Passover Peter wholeheartedly said I'll die for you Jesus and late that same night Peter was unwilling to even admit he knew Jesus was Peter a phony was he a closet coward Was he insincere? No, that's not who Peter was. 
I think something happened to Peter in between those two moments which took the fight out of him, which disheartened him. What was it that happened between when he said, I'll die for you, and he said, I don't even know the man. Well, Peter let Jesus down, in my opinion, because Jesus had let Peter down. Peter let Jesus down because Jesus had let Peter down. When did Jesus let Peter down? It happened just a few hours after Peter protested that he would never deny Jesus. That fateful moment when Judas showed up with armed soldiers and Jewish leaders and gave Jesus a kiss. You remember it. When they tried to arrest Jesus, Peter jumped into action. This was his moment. The time had finally come and he knew what to do. His zeal, along with the divine power of the Messiah, were enough to conquer the enemy and establish the Messianic kingdom. So Peter pulled out his sword and began to fight, cutting off the priest's ear in the process. Here was Peter, doing exactly what he had said, willing to die for Jesus. It's what happened at that moment which deflated Peter. Jesus stopped him. Put back your sword, Peter. And then he healed the priest's ear. And we're told that's when the disciples left him and fled. The next morning, Jesus explained to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight to defend me. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus had not been a coward. Peter knew how to use earthly weapons like swords and intimidation and pressure and coercion, but he wasn't so good at using spiritual weapons like speaking the truth of Christ in love like trusting the Lord in the face of danger like blessing those who curse you praying for those who persecute you like forgiving your enemy like turning the other cheek that kind of weapon is actually far more powerful than the weapons of the flesh And someone who takes up these weapons is showing more courage and less fear than those who take up swords and guns. Later, of course, Peter saw that the problem was not Christ's, but his. And he wept in regret. And Jesus not only forgave Peter, but called him back into ministry. But there's another dimension to this. Anyone who knows the proverb, the proverb, pride cometh before a fall, knows that it was inevitable 
that Peter was going to deny Jesus after he so emphatically and brashly said that he wouldn't. Even if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away, he said. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. You can see in Peter's words that he felt strong. But his sense of strength was unfounded. When God withdrew his strength from Peter, there was no strength left. Just a few hours before, Jesus had said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. But Peter had to learn that lesson the hard way. Now, the takeaway from the denial. Sometimes God allows us to mess up. Often, Jesus allows something hard to happen in our lives, and we feel like he's let us down. We feel like we've honored him, and instead of being blessed for it or rewarded for it, we get crushed. And usually, that's when we let Jesus down. What good is it to serve Jesus if he's going to treat me this way? The problem, of course, is that we think we know better than Jesus. We think we know better what's best for us than he does. We thought we were strong in faith, but it turns out we weren't. Oh, Father, I am ready to go with you both to, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Doesn't that sound like a godly statement? I'm sure everyone else in the room was impressed, except for Jesus. None of the others thought at the moment that this was an evil statement coming out of Peter's mouth. Satan is so subtle. He can make sin look so godly. He can make poison look so healthy. We admire someone with a can-do attitude. But have you ever thought about the potential sinfulness of a can-do attitude? There can be so much pride in it. There can be so much pride in I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10-12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. When we say, I shall never be moved, we set ourselves up for a fall. Sometimes we think we're strong and God just needs to humble us. So he removes some of his power from our lives. He allows us to stand on our own for a moment and we quickly collapse. And then it becomes obvious that in ourselves we have no strength but need God's. Peter was confident in his own faith, not realizing that on his own his faith was nothing. And God allowed him to fall in order to help him grow. And God allows us to fall in order to help us grow. 
I can look back at many of my failures and see that I needed to fail. I needed to be humbled. I needed to see what I was made of. I needed to see that Christ was my only hope. I think God gave us this story of Peter so that we could correctly interpret when failures and crashes occur in our lives. After his denial, Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. A few chapters before that, Jesus had told his disciples that in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, a person's pride had to shrink down to fit through the eye of a needle. And as Peter traveled from the place of boasting to the place of weeping bitterly, inside he was going from having a camel-sized ego to being humbled enough to fit through the eye of a needle. And many others have taken this journey as well. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, David in Psalm 30. It's a trip we all sometimes have to take. The day I became a Christian, I remember being outraged over those who weren't sold out for Jesus. I thought I was in a special group. Those sold out for Jesus. And for the next 27 years, I lived in the conviction that I was sold out to Jesus, but most Christians weren't. Of course, I understand the very real danger of not being sold out to Christ, of being lukewarm in our faith, of being double-minded and wavering back and forth. But there's also an opposite danger, a danger which goes along with being sold out to Jesus, or to put it in a better way, a danger in thinking you're sold out to Jesus. In short, like Peter, I discovered I was not nearly as sold out to Jesus as I thought I was. But it was through failures that I learned that. The story of Peter is an encouragement for us in at least three ways. First of all, it shows that God was, is involved. It shows us that God is involved not only in our successes, but in our failures. Often we have to fail in order to be fixed. Because we can't be healed until we see our sickness. Peter was not a humble man, but by God's grace he became a humbled man. And in the end, Peter was so much more useful to the Lord than when he was saying, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Though it was a painful process for Peter to get there. Painful realizations are a normal part and gracious gifts of the Lord to his beloved children. Second of all, the story of Peter is an encouragement because it shows us that the one who sometimes allows us to fail also picks us back up. Jesus had said to Peter, 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And I'd like to point out two things about that amazing statement that Jesus made to Peter at this moment. First of all, he didn't say, Peter, Peter. For in this case, Peter was acting like anything but a rock. He went back to Simon, Simon. What does Simon mean? Listen. Listen. The second thing is, he didn't say, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat, but you'll survive with a lot of humiliation and weeping. He said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus didn't hate Peter for what he did. And he didn't just receive him back. He prayed him back. He fought against Satan to get him back. He refused to let Satan snatch Peter out of his hand. Peter came back because Jesus pulled him back. Well, Jesus is praying for us too. And fighting for us too. And refusing to let go of us too. As he supervises the extreme makeover project of making us more like him. The third way that this story of Peter is an encouragement for us is that it shows us that just because we mess up, it doesn't mean there's no hope for us. Even great Christians like Peter and David messed up big time. And God allowed these big men to commit big sins and receive big forgivenesses so that we'll know that there's big forgiveness for us as well. It shows us that there is forgiveness and restoration and yes, even usefulness after a major failure. The most surprising aspect of the story of Peter's denial ought to be not that he denied Jesus but that Jesus forgave him and called him to continue in mercy and ministry and now finally a takeaway from the contrast between the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Jesus there are two different, very different kinds of sorrow. Peter wasn't the only one who experienced sorrow. Judas was also sorrowful for what he had done. We're told in Matthew 27.3, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. Two men both having failed the Lord in very significant ways, both facing the grief of their failure. And yet what a big difference there is between Peter's regret and Judas's regret. 
Don't read about Judas's sorrow here and start wondering if maybe Judas actually repented and went to heaven. It's clear that he didn't. Jesus said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Something that you can never say of a person that ends up in heaven. So what about Judas's sorrow? Well, there is a harmful, wicked, ungodly sorrow which is very different from good, godly sorrow. Godly grief is actually a precious gift from God. Jesus prayed for Peter and God gave Peter repentant, godly grief over his sin. Godly sorrow does not end in despair, as Judas's did, but in the happy embrace of God's forgiveness. It's not mere self-loathing that leads to death like Judas's was. Godly sorrow, here's the difference. Godly sorrow is relational. It is sorrow we experience before the living God. Before the Savior. It's grieving over how we have not loved Him as He deserves, and yet experiencing His loving forgiveness for those who are broken and contrite in spirit. When there is ungodly sorrow, on the other hand, only one person is present. In godly sorrow, the sinner is with God, He is addressing the God of mercy and forgiveness. In godly sorrow, your grief goes somewhere. It goes to God. It doesn't just stay with you. It doesn't just get felt. It gets expressed. The prodigal son did not just lay down and weep over his sins in his father's arms. He got up. I'm sorry. Forget the father's arms part. He did not just fall down and weep over his sins. He got up and he moved back to his father. His grief went somewhere. He brought his sorrow into his father's arms. Remember the little speech of repentance that the prodigal son composed to say to his dad. Do you remember the first word of that prayer of repentance? Father. And that's the first word of godly sorrow. The first word of true repentance. Father. Jesus never brought his sorrow to the Father. Here we have Judas and Peter. Two enormous figures in the drama of Jesus. One big night. Two big failures. But two very different outcomes. And two very different lessons. The two illustrate something that Jesus said that very evening earlier. When he said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's Judas. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And that's 
Peter. And that's us. Let's pray. How blessed we are, Lord, to have these precious records of what happened 2,000 years ago. May they reverberate in our minds and in our souls. And may they humble us and make us more like Jesus and more alert and aware of his goodness and his love and his forgiveness. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And now we come to the table that he called us to come to, to partake of his body and his blood symbolized in the bread and the cup. And dear Lord, we pray that you would be with us in this, that you would meet us here, that as we feed upon these things, we would feed upon you. For you are the true food, O Jesus, and our true drink. We pray all this in Jesus' name.